Even before I read, I want, you to, I want to point out to you chapter 5 and verse 12. Look at chapter 5 and verse 12. Should be one page turned back maybe. Paul asks, what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are outside? But those who are, uh, those, uh, do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. So the point of preaching in the pulpit is to not express anger or judgment towards the world. Of course the world is filled with sin. We were there, right? And we still battle and struggle with sin. The issue is not that we're demanding that everybody in the world be sinlessly perfect because we're already disqualified from that ourselves before we open our mouths. This passage is written in 1 Corinthians because in the Corinthian church, among the Corinthian Christians, there was gross sexual immorality happening in the church. In the church, there was a man who was in an affair with his father's wife. In the church. And the church just continued worshiping and celebrating anyway. And did nothing. They didn't mourn over it. They didn't grieve over it. They didn't tackle it and try to deal with it. Nothing. And so Paul wrote to them and rebuked the whole situation. He progresses into chapter 6 and describes how their carnality has clouded. This is again, it's an address to the church, not to the world. How their own carnality, that is their own fleshliness of mind and spirit, had caused them to not be able to judge the matters that they should with discernment. And then when he gets to verse 12, then there comes from there to the end of the chapter a short and concise statement about the specific danger of sexual immorality. And that's what we're going to consider today. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we don't expect that the world walks in a way that is an expression of the knowledge of you because they don't know you. We pray that they would come to the knowledge of you by hearing the gospel and believing the gospel. We pray that people of your church would walk with you. We do, however, Lord, grieve knowing that governmental authorities were ordained by you and they have their power from you. And at least in the case of this one particular law that we're talking about today, it seems like the governing authorities have passed a law that flies in the face of what you have taught in your word. Worse than that, worse than that, it seems like they have passed a law that would affect what preachers can and cannot teach in their churches. And we ought to obey you and not men when it comes to that. We don't preach morality. We don't preach works salvation. But we preach what your Holy Spirit leads us to preach. And we don't bow the knee to men when they tell us you can say this and you can't say that. We open our Bibles 
And what you say is what we preach and teach. Thank you, God. That's it. And so, Lord, help us to be humble, to trust in you, but to be faithful to your word. And thank you for your mercy and your grace towards sinners who sin any manner or any variety of sin, who humble themselves and repent and turn to you in faith for mercy. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me read, starting in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Okay? If you wanted to sum up this entire passage with one statement, it's pretty obvious what it would be, right? The first three words of verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. And if you wanted a little support for that, because three words weren't enough for you, then you would add the last statement of verse 20 to it. And you would say, flee sexual immorality And glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's the summation of the passage. Flee sexual immorality and with your body as well as your spirit, glorify God in the matter of sexual purity. And churches should be able to preach this to its members. In fact, we must Controversial, why? Because what is sexual immorality? Sexual immorality is any deviation from what God has ordained. God created humans. God created humans, male and female. God ordained that a man and a woman would marry and that the sexual union of that man and woman is so powerful and so strong that it is described as the two of them becoming one flesh. 
so important is not only the physical but the emotional nature of that union that if we were to read on into chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, you would find the apostle saying, don't deprive one another to husbands and wives. Because the deprivation of sex between a husband and a wife is very dangerous and can lead to temptation and is itself a corruption of God's design for human sexuality. That's how important it is. In Corinth, it is known from a literary standpoint historically that that sexuality was so loose that the word Corinthian had become a verb that was used to describe sexual immorality. Did you know that? Throughout the region, to Corinthianize meant to be sexually immoral. It wasn't used in a negative or derogatory way. It was celebrated, you know? You know, the person who, like, you know, it, it, I hate to say it, but it's a lot like Hollywood and a lot like the modern culture today, where, where for, for decades and decades, loose sexuality has been celebrated and encouraged to Corinthianize. That's what it used to be called in the ancient world. Any deviation, though, from what God has ordained is, falls under the umbrella of the Greek word pornea, which you don't have to be too creative to realize that's where the word pornography comes from. But in the most general sense, what pornea means is sexual immorality. Things like unmarried sexual relations, sexual relationship between people not married, is fornication or pornea, sexual immorality. Adultery, certainly, is sexual immorality. Adultery, listen, you don't have to be too smart to figure this out. Adultery leads to divorce. Adultery leads to hurt. Adultery leads to shame. Adultery leads to a a crushing and shattering of trust. Homosexuality is a form of sexual immorality. Incest is a form of sexual immorality. I believe at the root of it, all of the transgender confusion is a form of sexual immorality. Pornography is a form of sexual immorality. Rape and sexual abuse and sexual violence, pedophilia, are forms of sexual immorality. Bestiality is a form of sexual immorality. Anything that is not a husband and wife is outside the realm of the two becoming one flesh. And listen, churches need to teach this to Christians. We don't speak this to the world because we're trying to sanitize the world. You could make every unsaved person obey every sexual rule and they'd still die and go to hell. The call to the world is the call of the gospel. And once you've believed the gospel and you're part of the church, then you need to be taught that this is how God wants us to live. And this passage of scripture that I read to you is teaching for Christians. Now watch how this unpacks 
It's very simple and it doesn't take long to go through this passage. Do you know that I preached a sermon last week that including my introduction of my wife and myself only took 37 minutes? So, so I'm just saying that so you know I'm capable. It's, it's, it's down in there somewhere, the capacity to be, the capacity to be economic with words. Bob Halliday, I'm afraid, has, has, has learned from the old Lou that he's been listening to from 11 or 12 years now, right? <laughs> Praise the Lord. I, I didn't notice the time at all when I listened to you preach, brother. I didn't at all. It was beautiful. All right. Okay. Listen to this. It starts off with three contrasts, the passage. There's three layers of three in this passage. There's three contrasts. Then there's three statements about your body. And then there are three statements that are just generally rationale for avoiding sexual immorality. Three, three, and three. All things are lawful to me, but all but not all things, but all things are not helpful. Right? Let's take these one at a time. That's the first of the first three. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. What does that statement do for Christians? It points out, first of all, what? That the standard for conduct on my life is not just what does the law permit me to do. We're called to a higher standard than that. The statement that all things are lawful for me is a poor application of something that has some truth to it. Because, as you know, the law of God is a tutor. It teaches us our sin that we might come to the Lord for salvation. The law of God is not something that binds us to like a code of living wherein we try to justify ourselves before God. It never was, it never can be. So in a sense, when a person gets born again, he is what? Released from the law, in a sense. He's released from the law in that he's not in any way anymore subject to, his, to its penalty. And so a way perhaps of taking that too far and extending into a person's daily conduct is to say, all things are lawful for me. And then you go out and you have an affair. All things are lawful for me. And you give yourself over to whatever sexual urge you may feel. But, you see the but, right? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. See, God did not save us so that now we're free to just do whatever we feel like we can find some permission to do with some theological understanding. You know, maybe we feel like I'm not under the Old Testament anymore. I'm not under the Old Covenant anymore. I'm under grace now, so the laws don't matter. So if I feel in myself an urge to go out and go after this woman or whatever, uh, that, that, that God is sovereign, that must be God permitting it and allowing it. And there may have been in the minds of these Corinthian Christians who we know were very carnal from reading some of the older chapters, a feeling of empowerment to pursue sexually whatever they wanted to. But it's not helpful. The standard for Christians is higher. We are not called to just live a life of, I'm going to do whatever I'm allowed to do. The idea of helpful is useful, profitable, 
it's not useful or profitable to practice sexual immorality. Someone talking back there? Okay. All right. Okay, okay, okay. It didn't bother me. I just saw a lot of people suddenly looking around and like, you know, I want you to pay attention to this, all right? The second statement is like it. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. See? Sexual immorality is not profitable, and sexual immorality is addictive. Right? So Paul says, you can say whatever you want about what you think you're allowed to do, but the standard that a Christian is called to is, is the thing useful, and is the thing addictive? And both cases, the answer for sexual immorality is yes. I explained in a Bible study recently that if you look at Acts chapter 16, you don't have to turn there now, Acts chapter 15, rather, at the end of that chapter, the church in Jerusalem drafts a letter that is to be sent to all the Gentile churches to basically tell them, you don't need to keep the law, you don't need to uh, get circumcised, you don't need to observe the law of Moses in order to be saved, faith is enough. But then they add at the end of that letter, we just have a few things we want you to do. And one of the big things on the list was abstain from sexual immorality. Because it's destructive. It's destructive and it's addictive. And the third thing there is what? See this statement here? Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods? You know what that is? That's like a saying. It's like a cliche. Or it's like a a proverb. And, And the point of that is it's a very carnal statement. It's a carnal proverb. Basically what it is, is food's for the stomach and the stomach is for food. In other words, what I do in my physical life is completely separate from what I am spiritually. Right? The food, food is for my stomach. My stomach is for food. What I choose to do with my body is my business. In other words, physically the person believes what they do with their body has no ramifications before God. But, you see the but? That's a very important but right there. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. In other words, there are consequences for what you do with your body that come from God. That's a theme that goes through this chapter. The underlying theme to why the Corinthians were so promiscuous was they felt they were set free from any obligation to do or not do anything with their bodies. No restrictions. And all of this is to point out, okay, lawful, but it's not useful. You know, lawful, but I'm not going to be brought under the power of any. It's addictive, right? It's destructive, it's addictive, and there are consequences. Who will destroy both it and the body? Who? God. God will destroy both it and them. In other words, if you live your life with your body just going after sexual immorality any old way you want, don't be deceived into thinking that there's no consequences before God for that. God will destroy both it and them. Those are the first three things. Lawful, but it's not helpful. Lawful, but it's addictive. Physical realm, but not without spiritual consequences. You see? That's why you stay away from sexual immorality. Next set of three things. Ready? Now, the body is not for 
sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Right? So the first point there is very simple. Your body matters, and your body was not made for sexual immorality. Your body was made for the Lord. Simple as that. You don't engage in sexual immorality because your body is for the Lord and not just for yourself. Now, verse 14 is a great statement. The second one of this next three statements. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. You know, listen to this. I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but why is the Lord here so much trying to emphasize that sexual immorality is wrong because of the harm that it does to the body. And the body, your body's not yours. Your body belongs to the Lord. Why is he emphasizing that? Look, when Jesus died, he raised Jesus from the dead bodily. And listen, you and I one day are going to be raised bodily. Different body, incorruptible body, but by God's design... The eternal you and I that has been redeemed by him, we're not just going to be some spirit. We're going to inhabit bodies again. And I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but this walk through life right now is preparation for our serving of God through all eternity. You better get used to inhabiting a body because you're going to inhabit an incorruptible one forever and ever and ever. And so, in the, look, God didn't just have Jesus die and then that was the end. He raised his body. He's going to raise you with a new and incorruptible body. And so as you live in this body now, consider it, consider it to be a proven ground, a training ground for what you're going to do for all eternity. Amen? I love that point. And then thirdly, here's a really heavy point. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Underline the words, your bodies. It doesn't say you. It doesn't say, do you not know that you are members of Christ? It says, don't you know specifically that your bodies are members of Christ? One of the big points of this whole passage, like I said, is to get you to realize that sexual immorality is wrong because your bodies matter. You can't just walk around in sexual immorality and sexual corruption of any kind because your bodies do matter. Look, they're going to decay and go back to the ground. They don't matter in that sense. But they are the vessel that carries the redeemed you around. And here it says your body is a member of Christ. Don't argue with me on that because it says it right there. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He asks it in a way like he's surprised that they don't get that. Your bodies are members, and look, shall I then take the members of Christ? What are the members of Christ? Your bodies. Not just you, your bodies. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Right? In other words, engaging in sexual immorality, like going with a prostitute. You see? He explains. Let me, first of all, he says, certainly not. Right? So there's a self-evident no there, but he writes it anyway. Or do you not know, here's the explanation, that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her, and then the Genesis chapter 2.24 thing, for the two, he says, shall become one flesh. That statement in Genesis, when it says the Lord caused the two become, to, to become one flesh, that's primarily a reference to their sexual union. It has more ramifications than that. 
It goes into like just the intimacy of our relationship emotionally, spiritually, everything in total. But primarily it's a, it's a reference to the sexual relationship. That's proof of that is the use of it right here. Jesus, when he quoted this passage of scripture, added, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate, right? Which we always say at weddings, and that's why. For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Then verse 17 explains the whole thing. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Here's the idea. You don't commit sexual immorality because, ready? I'm sorry for the, look, the language, whatever. Well, I'm not really sorry for it. Look, you engage in a sexual relationship outside of your marriage. It's more than just the physical sexual act. You're becoming one with the person. God designed that one man and one woman would become one, and the two are one, and that should never be broken up. You go out and you engage with a prostitute or you have an affair or something like that. You're taking your body, which belongs to God. You're taking your body, which is like your training ground for your eternal future with God. And you're taking it, and if you are, if you will, marrying it through sexual immorality to someone else. Because the sexual act is, the sexual intercourse is the act of marriage. Do you understand? It's the, in the old days, people would call it consummating their marriage, right? I mean, that's the thing. That's the exclusivity of a husband and wife. And when you go outside of that, the two aren't one anymore. Now the three are one, or the four are one, or the five are one, depending on how many times you go outside of that, you see? That's why sexual immorality is wrong, because it corrupts the two are one principle that God ordained in the garden of Eden. And not just any two, Adam and Eve. The man, the woman. That's it. All right, so those next three statements were your body is for the Lord, you're going to be bodily resurrected, and your bodies are members of Christ. Did you catch all that? Three more reasons to stay away from sexual immorality, which is what it says next. In other words, because of all of those things, what? Flee sexual immorality. I love the simplicity and the directness of the command. Just run. Just get away from sexual immorality. There's, all, there's, 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 there's no need to elaborate because he didn't. It's one of those sins where it's just like, it's never going to be profitable. It's always going to be addictive. It's always going to have spiritual consequences. It's always going to take you away from the Lord because your body belongs to the Lord. It's always going to be an expression of the fact that you don't understand that you're going to inhabit a body for the rest of eternity. A different one, but you will. And you're expressing that you don't understand that your body is actually a member of Christ, a part of Christ. Therefore, run. Flee. Get away from sexual immorality. Whatever it is in your life that promotes it, this is one of the reasons why husbands and wives need to be very careful about the attention they give each other. Right? When a wife deprives her husband 
or a husband deprives their wife. It doesn't, it doesn't, and this is in the next chapter, it doesn't license them to go outside their marriage, but boy, it sure makes it hard for them not to. That's a little part of the sexual immorality dilemma that hardly ever gets discussed, but the Bible discusses it, and we'll get to it on Thursday night pretty soon. Right? Sexual immorality simply must be fled. Then look, three more things. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. In case you didn't have enough already, when you're committing sexual immorality, you're sinning against your own body. You know, what did Jesus say when they told him, why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? He said, well, you know, you know food doesn't corrupt you. You eat food and it goes into your body and then it's eliminated. No, it's what comes out of a heart, what proceeds from the heart and out the mouth. That's what corrupts a man, right? So like ordinarily, you know, sin isn't about like things that are outside of us. Not this though. Sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Sin, not just bad for your own body, it's a sin against your own body. See it? He who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And then verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? You were bought with a price. There's two things there. One, your body is a temple. Right? Why don't we worship at the temple in Jerusalem? Why don't we, why don't we view this building as a temple? Because it's not. God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Your body is a temple. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into you. And your body, your body, which is the vessel which carries the true you, your spirit, around in life, you're also carrying in you the nature of God in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that? God himself, God himself is in you. Your body is, so why would you take that temple and corrupt that temple through sexual immorality in all of its forms? And then the third one of those is simply this. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You were bought with a price. The price. The price. What, it rep- what this represents. You were bought with the price and we don't belong to ourselves anymore and so we don't live in sexual immorality as if we are our own and can just do whatever we feel like right pretty strong stuff sexual immorality is any corruption of what God designed and here's your reasons why may I just add this is not legalism I have not once said to you, thou shalt not. I have also not at one point said to you, if you fall prey to any of this, then you must not be truly saved. You can obey everything that's here and still go to hell. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, repentance, repentance. I am glad to say to you today, very glad to say to you today at the end of this hard message, 
that the Lord still receives the humble and the repentant. It is still true that God resists the the proud but gives his grace to the humble. It is still true that God shows mercy to as many as fear him. It is still true that as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. We are not promoting legalism. You are saved by grace and you live by grace, but you need to be trained in the word of God. And this issue of sexual immorality is one that is singled out here as something that is destructive, addictive, has consequences, denies that your body is for the Lord, denies that you understand that you're going to be bodily resurrected, denies that you understand that your body is actually a member of Christ, It's actually a sin against your own body. It's a taking of the temple of the Holy Spirit and putting it somewhere where it doesn't belong. And it's also a wreck. It also betrays that you think you belong to yourself when in fact you've been bought with a price. Sexual immorality does all that. And so what? Flee. 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 And I would add, if I might, repent. Repent, humble yourself, acknowledge your sin, turn to the Lord, cry out for grace, cry out for his abundant mercy and forgiveness. Be renewed, be restored, be cleansed. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is also a promise to Christians. All right. So you've heard what I said, you understand what I said, it, why I said it, and we prefaced it all the most perfect way that you can, by eating at the Lord's table. Amen. At the end of it all, the bottom line under all this is what? We're all lost. We're all in need of grace. We've all sinned and broken his commandments and deserve his judgment and his eternal punishment anyway. But Jesus died for us and took the penalty for our sins when he died on the cross. He was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead, and there is no other way. It's a narrow road, man, and not many will find it, but the road's there. Come to Jesus for cleansing and mercy and forgiveness.